Hello, and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and today we're finally going to get into a bit more detail about the Cosa Nostra in Sicily. We've talked about the Andrangheta and their alliance with the Avanguardia Nazionale. We talked about the Nuovo Camorra Organizzata and its alliance with the Banda della Maliana and the Roman fascist terrorists of Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari. We've even gone over the sketchy assassinations of the former head of the Italian state oil company Enrico Mattei and the journalist Mauro Di Mauro in Sicily, probably by forces connected to the Christian democracy's perennial gray eminence, Giulio Andreotti. Heck, we've even discussed the fascinating details of the assassination of Sicilian politician Pier Santi Mattarella from Andreotti's rival current. And oh yeah, we talked about the fixer, lawyer, banker, and all-around skis Michele Sindona and his efforts to lay low among the transatlantic mafiosi in Sicily. But in all these cases, we really focused on the Italian peninsula in relation to the political violence that became known as the Years of Lead. I hope that this episode will pull all those threads together to show the role Sicily was playing in that time period, or at least the Mafia, helping to flesh out the fuller story of how the Years of Lead happened, and also to some extent how it ended. But this story doesn't begin in the luscious villas of Palermo or the famous lemon orchards of Messina. It starts in the middle of the island, in the town of Corleone. The so-called dirty farmers of Corleone were mocked everywhere they went in Palermo. These were the Corleonesi, the poor rural clan from the country town of Corleone in the center of Sicily by the mountain Bosco della Ficusa that gave its vineyards and olive trees something of a haunting yet romantic shiver of cold breeze despite its long, torrid, and dry summers. The other mountain, Rocca Busambra, offers plentiful caves and hiding places for people, money, whatever. This remote clan in the rugged Sicilian wildland struggled in an impoverished part of a poor island. Like most of the Sicilian mafiosi in the decentralized landscape of organized crime, it's said that the Cosa Nostra actually dated back to the Arab occupation of the island and ensuing wars of reconquest. The word mafia has mysterious origins, perhaps from the Arabic noun mahias, meaning swagger, or the Saracen ethnic group ma'afir. In the 17th century, while witches were still persecuted, one gained the name mafia for her willfulness, and the name appears to become associated with the secret society in the mid-19th century. More directly, what became Cosa Nostra in the harsh heartlands of Corleone assembled within the so-called brothers, the Fratuzzis, who supervised large land holdings while the owners lived pampered lives in Palermo. The Fratuzzis kept the peasants and villagers in line, and when and where they could, they took a little for themselves. They were, even at the turn of the century, a class of semi-feudal knights, a remnant of the old order, the security of tradition, keeping the landlord's properties like their own personal fiefdoms, raking in protection money, stealing cattle and food, and doing kidnappings, arsons, and murders. It was there in Corleone that the criminal element invented the so-called white shotgun, inviting their victim to a cordial meal of satisfying food and drink before murdering them and destroying the body, leaving no trace behind. No body, no crime. Among their number was a certain doctor named Michele Navarra, whose uncle and father were both fratuzzi. Navarra collaborated with the fascist regime to sell out some of the soldiers and bosses of nearby provinces in order to advance himself and his ambitions. Under Allied occupation, Navarra continued to collaborate with the Allies, amassing power through a bloody reign of more than a hundred murders in the four years between 1944 and 1948. Remember, Corleone was not only a poor municipality, it only had a few thousand people. Navarra's line of work brought him into the company of some young hustlers and peasants from the area who wanted to make a little more of themselves, or couldn't make ends meet without a little support from the honored society. One of these guys was Luciano Ligio. Thin, 
his body racked by a kind of spinal tuberculosis known as Potts disease, Ligio came from a house of farmers, and his right-hand man was a teenager named Salvatore Toto Rina. Marked by his short height, even at a young age, Toto Shorty Rina has the hollow look of death in his eyes. This young boy also came from a farming home. One day, a couple of years after the Allied invasion, his father found an unexploded shell near the house. He brought it home, thinking its explosives had emptied out, but with a jolt, the shell exploded, killing Shorty Rena's father and brother. He grew up leading the family through brute work without knowing luxury. He was determined and had a will of iron. But few people knew back then that Shorty wanted to be king of Italy. Lucio Ligio was poor. Toro Rina was a kind of street kid and small-town flaneur. His friends, Calogero Bagarella, born in 1935, and Bernardo Povenzano, born in 1933, rounded out the gang. Together they worked for Nevada, stealing or slaughtering cattle, sabotaging vehicles, arson. They were growing into a force within the Strasato countryside. In the book Capo de Capi, Attilio Bolzoni and Giuseppe Davanzo write, quote, Toto was the smartest, the cruelest, the coldest, the most diabolical. He was the most Corleonese of the Corleonesi. The first murder carried out by this scrappy gang from Corleone was 1948, when they kidnapped and killed a trade unionist. The man was Placido Ritotto, a trade unionist who was planting the red flag all over the area. Ritotto had actually broken up a fight between some mobsters and a group of former partisans who were traveling through the area. The mobsters, who had actually started the fight by making fun of the partisans' outfits, included Ligio. And the legend is that Ritotto actually picked up the frail Ligio, slammed him against the wall, and hung him up on the sharp gate by his coat. You know, the fact that Ritotto was a red only sealed his fate. Shorty Urina killed again some months later, this time in a stupid firefight with a group of cousins who hated his gang. For this second crime, he actually went to jail, in Palermo. But he was out soon enough in six years, and started going out with his buddy Calogero's sister, Ninetta Bagarella. For this, he promised Calo his own sister's hand in marriage. When a local farmer, Ambrogio Micheli, was denied Calogero and Ninetta's sister's hand in marriage by their strict father, he got mad and started besmirching her name around town, and for this, Calogero murdered him and fled into the southern countryside down the winding state road 118 through those badlands that look so much like the American West in the spaghetti westerns. The scorching Sicilian summers and dry land made water a premium in the heartlands, and in 1958, word of a dam started to spread. It was the first crack in the Corleonesi. Ligio and his squad, all now pushing 30, wanted to get legit and back the politicians who promised the dam, which they believed would support their new cattle-herding business. Wink, wink. But Dr. Michele Navarro didn't want the dam because it would have forced the mafia that owned the well water into an uncomfortable position with lower water prices, competition, and greater availability. A friend of Navarra bought into this herding company and created a farm next to its land. Soon, Navarra made it known that his crop wasn't good. Barrels of wine in the cellar were destroyed and no farm worker could be found to harvest the wheat. Ligio and Shorty Rina decided they'd step up and do the harvest in secret at night, and this really pissed off Dr. Navarra. The doctor, who had been their patron, turned against them and had some men ambush Ligio in the stables of the same farm right there in the yellow and dry Piano della Scala outside of Corleone. Ligio, Shorty Rina, and their new generation mafia went to war against the old mafia of Dr. Navarra. On the eve of this war, Shorty Rina is made. Now, some say that this ritual involves pricking the index finger, drawing blood from the hand that will kill for the honored society. 
In each province, though, the ritual is supposed to be different. Some say that in Corleone, it involved slicing one's lip and letting the blood drip onto a drawing of a skull. From then on, the men of honor identified themselves by touching the incisor, mimicking a toothache. These were men you didn't want to fight if you didn't have to. Quoting again from Capo de Capi, quote, They were people used to living alone in the countryside, people who had spent their lives in the pastures closer to animals than to men. As a secret weapon, they had their instincts. First they struck, and then they thought. First they killed, and then they reflected on their actions. They ambushed Nevada on the 15th mile of a small provincial road. Once you get out into that rugged, sun-parched country, there are no witnesses. Navarra drove his Fiat 1100 family car into the maw of a trap at high noon on an oppressively hot day. A road obstructed. Five shooters in two cars. 124 shots fired from a Tommy gun and Breda machine guns. Three quarters of those were found in Navarra's corpse. His comrade was dead behind the steering wheel as well, a doctor like him, who died for the killer's fears of identification. What followed was an absurdity that led Sicilian-American gangsters across the Atlantic to call Corleone Tombstone. The mafiosi from either side evacuated the town for the hills, where they hid out to anticipate the other's moves. After a month of cat and mouse, a truce was made on the condition that the ambushers who had tried to murder Ligio were exposed. In a furious ten-minute firefight that raged through the claustrophobic and winding labyrinth of Corleone, the men were murdered like rabbits in a hunt. But this wasn't enough for Toto Shorty Rina. He tracked down the leaders and the most feared men of Nevada's loyal subjects, Following 80-year-old Carmelo Lobue, he shot him in the back, and with his victim already feeling death upon him, Rina stuck his pistol in Lobue's mouth and executed him. A warning for anyone who would talk. The Navarran's most ruthless hitman was later mowed down in an ambush by Shorty Rina with a shotgun blast to the chest, but not before shooting his beloved friend Binu Provizano's cousin in the face six times. The war continued for years, when, in 1962, a new public safety commissioner landed in Corleone, Angelo Mangano, and I guess the Navarans just sort of gave up at that point. Victorious, the Ligio gang was now at the helm of the Corleonesi, with Bagarella, Provenzano, and Shorty Rina, Ligio goes north from the heartland of Sicily to the capital, Palermo. Returning to Capo de Capi, quote, The Corleonesi came down from the hills and timidly entered the city with their black cloth or wide corduroy clothes, their shoes dirty with mud and their flat caps on their heads. They had sun-baked faces and calloused hands. They were humble, respectful, sometimes even servile. The viceroys looked at them and made fun of them. Those who came from the countryside were the Vidani. They were silent, the short, stocky men who lived around Busambra Keep. They were as obedient as dogs with their owners. They knew the rules they wanted to do, but not overdo it. Someone began to call them, with mixed irony and contempt, Picciutunazzi, the Picciutunazzi of Corleone. So, there's two terms in Palermo assigned to the Corleonesi, the Vidani, which I saw on Wikipedia, they say it means peasant, but it really means something more like the dirty farmers. And then there's the Picciutunazzi, which is one of those words shared by Sicily and Corsica, but not so much Italy, uh, the peninsula. It doesn't really register in that lexicon. Basically, it means the little ones. Now, every time I get into Sicily in the 1960s here, I have to talk about King Concrete. The Christian democracy in Sicily is booming, and they had contracts coming out of their ears. 
On paper, it looked like four pensioners, four or five, receiving the bulk of these massive cement structures, the parking lots, the modern buildings, but it was the gangsters who took these jobs in actuality. With a taste of the good life, Ligio was gone, up to Milan or wherever, spending all the money he could and dwindling his life out in debauchery. But the Corleonesi, they stayed with the support of Salvatore La Barbara, and they made good on the discreet jobs he handed them. Palermo's mayor, Salvino Lima, was the son of made men, and he helped facilitate the growth of Cosa Nostra through government procurements of lucrative projects that funneled cash straight into their pockets. At first, a man of Fanfani's current within the Christian democracy, he moved to that of Giulio Andreotti, and there he stayed for decades. Andreotti became known as the uncle to the Palermo gangsters of the 60s and 70s, always helping Lima make up his mind on pressing issues with the help of some friendly tax collectors. But, to say that Andreotti ran the show would be wildly naive as to the formulations of power that were ongoing and growing at the time. In fact, the Mafia had a commission on which the heads of the different families sat in order to decide on key policies. One building contractor who didn't like the run of business kidnapped and murdered the Corleonesi's closest relation, La Barbara, and then parked a Fiat 1100 family car in front of the house of the boss, Greco of Ciaculli, filled with TNT. That bombing, which was subsequently blamed on others, led to a bloody mafia war, called the First Mafia War, which saw daylight murders and massacres raging throughout Palermo, in the markets, in the villages, a period in which hundreds from multiple sides fell prey to vicious killings, senseless killings, over just a few months. The Corleonesi watched mostly from the sidelines until June 29th, when someone decided to leave a Giulietta car bomb at the house of another Greco family member. The car had a flat, so the driver abandoned it in a driveway in Ciaculli, at the outskirts of Palermo. A passerby noted wires were sticking out of the door, and the police came to disarm the bomb that included a cylinder of liquid gas. Thinking the coast was clear, they opened the trunk, causing a massive explosion that killed four carabinieri, two soldiers, and a cop. It was a huge shock that put an end to the war as the police descended on suspected mafiosi throughout the island. By the end of 1963, almost 90,000 people had been warned by the state, 855 arrested. One of them was Toto Shorty Rina. All the made men ended up in the same prison, an ancient fortress built by the Bourbons at the heart of Palermo, like the Bastille, called the Uciardone. They had a good time there, too. The cells were always open, champagne flowed, and the different crime families attempted to one-up one another in terms of the quality of life felt by their subjects inside. This was the most important guarantee to mafiosi, that once they inevitably ended up in jail, they'd be looked after like they were on vacation. Even Ligio was caught and ended up behind bars. However, Shorty Rina, in all of this, maintained his austerity on the inside, gaining a huge deal of respect from the other mafiosi. More or less, the Cosa Nostra's timeline can be divided between before and after the Chiaculi massacre. It was just a massive setback that wouldn't be recovered for over ten years. The number of mafiosi arrested not only put a significant halt to many operations, but also led to an opportunity for the Corleonesi to gain status behind bars among the honored society. At the same time, it could have been worse for them. The prison was practically a hotel, and they knew the trial would be a piece of cake. Then, in 1966, a farm worker from Corleone, Luciano Raya, came forward and confessed to hearing about murders committed by the Corleonesi or otherwise knowing of them. His testimony made a serious dent in the Mafia's case that they were being arraigned on a witch hunt, but the court in Bari acquitted the Corleonesi of everything, reprimanding the prosecutors and the police, and deriding the pentito Luciano Raya as, quote, devoid of moral heritage, having heard testimony that he was a homosexual and a pervert. 
perhaps most importantly, the trial determined that the mafia was a real thing, but it wasn't a hierarchically determined structure with any kind of cohesion or strategic infrastructure. It was just sort of a made-up, goofy secret society that had the equivalent of a secret handshake. After acquittal, Shorty Rena kind of wanted to give it all up and join the defense attorney's office as a clerk, but the police issued a warning about him being socially dangerous, so he couldn't get the job. Meanwhile, Legio's health took a turn for the worse, so Shorty had to take the long trek back to Corleone alone. Just a short time after returning to his mother's house, he was arrested again by Sicilian police and sent back to Palermo, where the judges sentenced him to housing restrictions, which he fled in 1969, and he remained in hiding until his death. Even though he's in hiding, Shorty Rena knows where and when to appear. Stories multiply that he's living in the caves and dugouts of mountain country around Corleone. He also has a hideout in Naples that he attends not infrequently. And you would think that Shorty Rena is at a disadvantage here, whereas the other bosses, like the flashy Stefano Bontate, a gangster of the old days and ways whose flair and fashion brought him the nickname The Prince, were established. They could show their faces, hold their heads high in public, act like patrons in their communities. Shorty Rena was still a Vidane from the heartland, a dirty little peasant being actively hunted by the police. But the most important thing that Shorty Rena will always have is access. But why? Doesn't Stefano Bontate have the ear of Giulio Andreotti? Doesn't Bontate and Palermo Mayor Salvino Lima have the Christian democracy of the island in their back pocket? Well, to actually get moving on public procurement projects, you have to go through the Councilor for Public Works. And that guy, Vito Ciancimino, is the son of an old barber from Corleone. And if there's one traditional guy in town who knows everyone and everything about their lives, who can put a razor to your neck and have you feel more comfortable than on any other day of the week, it's the town barber. Vito Ciancimino grew up in Corleone, Corleonese, in more ways than one. Or at least that's the origin story the press and subsequent books have run with. If you read the book by his son, on the other hand, it happens to be a bit more complicated. See, Don Vito had been relatively well-educated, one of the only men in Corleone to read and speak English, so when the Allies landed, he was useful to them. He started a successful import-export business and built things up from there. He then took one of Rina's gang, Binu Provenzano, under his wing, helping him with his own education, and things carried on. As an educated man, he saw himself as kind of a mediator between some vicious people. And to get to Don Vito, you had to go through a guy who had since gone into hiding. And to get to that guy, you had to get Shorty Rena's permission. For construction, engineering, technicians, entrepreneurs, Palermo was Don Vito's city. And this was something that not even the mayor could touch. And nobody wanted to touch the Corleonese. It was rumored that with every hundred new concrete structures being built, a body was buried in the foundation of at least one of them. And there were many hundreds of structures going up every year in the 1960s. The Corleonesi are making money hand over fist in Palermo, and Ligio is increasingly moving his operations up to northern Italy. He still has a wine shop slash restaurant in Palermo where he meets with his crew, and he still makes time to commit horrible atrocities. In one instance of Vendetta, he called for a hit against a different mafioso who had killed one of his guys, and then he called for the killing of that guy's lover, and, unsatisfied, raped then strangled to death the latter's teenage daughter. So Shorty Rina is going back and forth mostly between Palermo and his hometown, and with Ligio almost out of the picture in Milan, the pure hitman falls under the patronage of a boss named Gaetano Baldamenti. So towards the end of 1969, the bosses get together to confer about how to recover from the downward spiral that's been happening ever since the bombing in Chiaculli. Really, the blame is zeroed in on Michele Cavataio, the contractor from the village Aquasanta, who had initially set up the families to go to war against one another by bombing the Grecos in the first place. The families fail to reach a consensus on the murder, but some of the dissenters get together and decide to go through with it anyway. 
Shorty Rena is obviously going to be their guy because he has no reservations at all about murder, and his crew is tried and tested. It's set up almost like the Dr. Navarra killing. There's six killers in two Julias, one light, the other dark. There are five in police uniforms, two from Bontate's clan, and one from the clan of Giuseppe di Cristina. Shorty is driving around in a car, keeping an eye on the scene at first. Viale Lazio is a pretty street lined with trees, and the offices of the Moncada firm sit in a nice pink building adorned with vines. The police impersonators enter with confidence, and one immediately drills the two staffers behind the reception desk. Shorty didn't even have time to give the order, when suddenly all guns are blazing. A third man is killed, two more employees are shot in the hail of bullets, and Cavatayo is hiding behind a cabinet. He's reloading his revolver, screaming curses, and suddenly jumps up and fires at the intruders, hitting Calogero Bagarella. Calo's only hit in the hand, but in that moment of pain and recoil, he gave Cavatayo an opportunity to get the jump on him. Cavatayo pulls out a shotgun and blasts Calo right in the chest. That would be the final act for both men. Cavatayo is hit and dies in his office. Shorty Rena's best friend was dead, but so was the man who had started the first Mafia War. It was a terrible price to pay. The gang took Kahlo's body away in one of the Julias during the escape, and it was buried in secret. As usual with the Corleonesi, the secret was also expensive. They murdered not only the Undertaker, but also a city hall clerk who kept the books on the dead. They were the final two victims of the Viale Lazio massacre. The point at the end of the 1960s, where the first Mafia War could have been said to have finally ended, and the second one might have been said to have started. But the real killing of the Second Mafia War won't really begin for another ten years. The relations between the families will undergo a continual process of erosion, as the blood that drips from Viale Lazio increasingly turns into a torrent, taking the lives not only of mobsters, but important journalists and magistrates. I already talked about the killing of Maro de Maro, the journalist responsible for uncovering a lot of corruption going on in the Lima administration and the construction rackets, in the episode on the killing of poet and filmmaker Pierpaolo Pasolini. This killing involved a complex formulation that likely included more than just construction, since Mauro de Maro was looking into the state energy company ENI's machinations and the death of its founder years earlier in a suspicious plane crash over Sicily. But that murder was just the tip of the iceberg. On May 5th, 1971, the Cosa Nostra killed a magistrate in a shocking daylight hit on Via des Cipressi in Palermo. The hit took place in the Sicilian Casbah, the ancient neighborhood of Danisini, at 11 a.m. Pietro Scaglioni was sitting in a black 1300 sedan driven by a prison officer named Antonino Larusso when a white Fiat 850 sport coupe pulled in front of it and blocked its way. It was the first of what became known as the Excellent Cadavers, or Excellent Killings, the assassination of high-level officials by the Mafia, and it was a Corleonesi operation all the way through. In fact... The murder of magistrates Gallione seemed excessive to other Sicilian crime families who worked on the old rules of a traditional non-belligerence pact between themselves and the state. They'd decided, going into 1971, to form a triumvirate that would be responsible for deciding any big decisions without breaking traditional rules in Cosa Nostra. The triumvirate would include Stefano Bontate, Gaetano Badalamenti, and Luciano Ligio himself. Shorty Rina wasn't exactly a boss, but he was still in Ligio's Corleonesi clan, and he was also close to Badalamenti now, and Stefano Bontate had joined in the Viale Lazio massacre, so he was climbing the ranks. But one thing that's for sure is that he and Stefano Bontate weren't exactly getting along. 
Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa was only a colonel at the time. He was about to be called up to the north to deal with the Red Brigades during the kidnapping season of 1973 to 1974, but for the time, he was tracking the rise of the Corleonesi, and he noted, quote, the Sicilian Mafia was divided in two opposing sections despite the apparent peace. This was a far more astute analysis than the judiciary was capable of providing to this point, and it isolated precisely the process that would culminate in la matanza, which means simply the slaughter. Just like in the war against the Navarians, you had the modern mafia pitted against the traditionals, and the thing that most typified the modernists was their ferocity. A little after the Scalione assassination, the cops brought in Shorty Rina's girl, Ninetta Bagarella, who he courted when he was 26 after getting out from the six-year sentence for his earlier murder charge, and she was literally half his age at the time. But no evidence indicates that the two were not in love or committed to one another in a very traditional way. She refused to admit that Shorty had ever done anything. She denied the existence of the mafia and professed her undying love for her man. They let her go, but put her on a two-year special surveillance process. Thus, in 1974, after the process ended, she disappeared, and she and Shorty Rena finally got married. Over the next few years, while the Rena couple added a few new additions to the family, kidnapping season also descended on Sicily. Now... The commission had ruled against kidnappings in the early 1970s, but the Corleonesi couldn't really help themselves. It started in August 1972 when they kidnapped the son of Arturo Cassina, an elderly nobleman and friend of Stefano Bontate. Cassina was a big landowner and the so-called procurement king of Palermo, so hitting him was also sending a message that the Corleonesi should be able to keep their stature as legitimate businessmen. Rina got a handy billion lire out of the ransom, and he kept the money. This drew the ire of Bontate, who by the mid-1970s had brought Badalamenti to his side, got the latter to realize that the Corleonesi were becoming a huge problem. In one case, Badalamenti called Toto Shorty Rina to meet up in an accountant's office, but Shorty sniffed out the trap and figured out that the police would have met him there instead. Things are getting very touchy between the triumvirs, and to make matters worse, the drug trade was firmly in the hands of one of them. Stefano Bontate's family was getting filthy rich refining heroin that was being shipped to the United States, and he wouldn't share this business with the Corleonesi. And we are talking about big business. Before heroin, there were cigarettes, and that could give you a return of something like nine times the original cost of buying this stuff in Tangiers when you sold it in Rome. But the heroin changed everything. It all started with Turkish morphine, refined in Marseille, and sold by the Cosa Nostra. The first networks to strike it rich in Rome were called the Marsiliesi for that reason. They literally were coming out of the Marseille-French connection. And... That connection was given cover by the CIA for the Mafia's efforts to subvert dock workers in the South France port city, known for its revolutionary militancy. But when the French connection was finally busted, the Dotari Nino Vernengo realized that you could make heroin with, quote, a kitchen, a couple of steel basins, a bit of fire, and all bets were off. Not that it went well. At one point, Vernengo sold a bunch of tropine with a little heroin in it to Pino Greco, who sent it over to the U.S., and a hundred people died. But generally, they figured it out. The reality, of course, was that Bontate wasn't the only guy running drugs to the States. All the families were dealing wherever they had connections. It was an uncoordinated free-for-all. You had Badalamenti dealing to Detroit, Nene Cerachi dealing to the Bananos in New York, there was big business in Buffalo. It was bankrolling the whole mafia, but it was all done piecemeal. Family connections were family connections. 
Francesco Marino Manoia became the biggest dealer during the 1970s, working directly with and for Stefano Bontate. If they couldn't cut into heroin, the Vidani from Corleone would make big money in kidnapping, and nobody could stop them. Ligio continued to organize kidnappings in Milan. In 1974, he had Eugene Paul Getty III, the teenage nephew of the Getty fortune, kidnapped. They got over a billion lire from this operation, distributing some of the takings among the Indrangheta families as well. Police investigating this and other kidnappings in northern Italy located an aristocrat being held through a trapdoor in the floor of a lone farmhouse outside of Milan. The men holding this aristocrat dropped the name of one Antonio Ferrugia, who they traced to Milan. When they tracked him down, it wasn't Signor Antonio, it was Luciano Ligio himself. With Ligio in jail, Shorty Rina could have more space to operate independently, and Ligio didn't like this. He told his associates to work with a different representative. Rina returned the favor by thwarting two efforts to break Ligio out of jail. Rina then kidnapped the son of a landowner named Francesco Caruso, a lawyer named Nicola Campi. PC. And then, in July 1975, the tax collector Luigi Corico, also called Luigi Corleo. Corico's kidnapping was the most offensive because this guy was the father-in-law of the man of honor, Nino Salvo. Look, Salvo wasn't just tied to Bontate and Badalamenti. He was close friends with Salvo Lima, the fucking mayor of Palermo. For this man, the Corleonesi demanded 20 billion lire. Capo de Capi declares, It wasn't a kidnapping. It was a challenge that the Vidani of Corleone had launched against the most powerful mafia in Palermo. Outraged, the Salvos refused to pay the huge ransom to release Luigi Corico, and he disappeared. They'd never find his body. It was a terrible blow to Pontate and Badalamenti's familial relations, and prestige. Sensing his difficult situation, Shorty sold out the gang who carried out the attack, isolating them as an alien force and liquidating them. Everything's good that's good. As John Fulane writes, quote, If they had joined forces, Badalamenti and Puntate would have had all the firepower necessary to counterattack and defeat the Corleonesi. And there was still time to do so. However, they did not realize the extent of the coup and did not act. The Vidani had challenged the establishment and had gotten away with it. From the financing of kidnappings, Rina knew that he could open up the procurement's territory. Palermo, Chiaca, Expressway, the Garcia Dam, water and street infrastructure for Belice. Here was hundreds of billions on the table and the Corleonesi could be right there to favor the companies who loved them the most, put the right guys in the right positions, get all the kickbacks, and deepen their grasp on power with Don Vito. In case you thought everyone was just going to let this happen, there was one man named Lieutenant Colonel Giuseppe Russo of the Carabinieri working to put things together. A tall and thin man, Russo had beaten down doors, traced evidence of the kidnappings to a church in Carini, where he found tens of millions cash belonging to Ligio and Rina from the kidnappings. He had uncovered the hiding place of one of Ninetta's brothers. In 1977, after all of this, he was set to retire. He took his August vacation in Ficuza, a small town around Corleone, just at the base of Rocca Busambra that mysterious stomping ground for hunters and mafiosi. A car circled the block four times, waiting for the right time to strike, and as Nini Russo lit a cigarette, they shot him to death. It was another event Rina coordinated without giving other bosses so much as a warning. Another excellent cadaver, leading to mass arrests without time to assemble alibis. In the meantime, Shorty Rena extends his network throughout the island. He has members of the commission replaced with faithful partners, and he gets other commission members to supply him with security when he returns from Naples to the island. 
This brings him growing clout, and it assembles loyalty relationships with other clan security teams. This is instrumental for the Corleonesi's rise, because unlike other families, you never knew who was actually Corleonesi. There was dual membership. Giuseppe di Cristina, a fighty boss from the line of bosses out of the Riesi peasantry, spoke out against Rina's power grab and the killing of Russo. He tried to shake the other bosses out of their complacency, including Michele Greco, the secretary of the commission, insisting that they were acting like puppets dancing on the end of Shorty Rina's strings. A few days later, Di Cristina decides to go to work a little bit later than usual, and the car that usually took him gets hit by a squad, killing the passenger who looked a lot like Di Cristina. Di Cristina calls a meeting to confront Greco, to his face, but Bontate shows up instead. Di Cristina says, I asked to convene this meeting and I sent for Michele Greco because I wanted to tell him that here I am speaking as a dead man. It's a dead man talking. I was dead and now I want to know why I got shot. Why did they shoot me? Why do they want to kill me? Can someone explain to me why I'm sentenced to death? Di Cristina knew that Greco was Shorty Rina's man after this and Bontate he was profiting too much from the heroin trafficking with the U.S. that he didn't want to stir things up too much. He had his suspicions too, of course, but he wouldn't offer up any answers as to why Di Cristina, the tiger of Riesi, had become a target. Another mafia boss who didn't like the Russo killing was the Catania leader, Pippo Calderoni. Catania was calm, and he liked it calm. It was easier to run things without so much violence. He considered himself wise among the honored society. Calderone was called the Silver Canarotsu because he spoke with a microphone on his throat following a laryngeal surgery. He complained to his brother, The regional commission has become a useless thing. You stay there for hours, you discuss and you talk, you come to an agreement and then... The Corleonesi show up with that stone face of theirs, silent humble. They don't say anything and you think they agree. As soon as they leave the meeting, they do as they want. Together, Pippo Calderone and Pepe di Cristina conspired to move on Shorty by pitting him against Pontate. If Pontate wouldn't help them, they would put the target on his back. They staged a humiliation carried out by the son of Shorty's friend, Francesco Madonia, against Pontate's people. Electing to take the hit and move on, Bontate wisely avoided reaction against Shorty. In a fit of rage, Di Cristina had Madonia, Shorty's friend, murdered at the base of Falconara Castle. So, like that, they murdered a family head without permission and put themselves in deeper trouble. There was one catch. Shorty Rina knew that he was walking on a razor-thin line between gaining power and getting killed. He also remembered the way that Badalamenti had tried to set him up. There was no long-term alliance for the Corleonesi, just short-term strategic ones. Badalamenti had facilitated Rina's rise after the big trial, but this made not a jot of difference in Rina's balance book. Rina spread the rumor that Badalamenti had opened up heroin trade with Detroit, among other cities, without telling the other bosses. Badalamenti's prestige decreased as the discrediting efforts ramped up, and then the other shoe dropped. Calderone and Di Cristina had told Badalamenti about the Madonia killing ahead of time, and Badalamenti hadn't moved to stop it. And that was it. Badalamenti was pushed out of the Mafia, ending up exiled in Spain and then in Brazil. In case you're wondering, it's kind of extraordinary for someone to get expelled from Cosa Nostra, put outside the family. That doesn't happen every day. It was a big flex by the Corleonesi in power, and it was even clearer who his enemies were now. Di Cristina, the tiger, knew the time to act decisively was now or never. In 1978, he sends some hitmen to catch Shorty in his Napoli hideout, but they can't find him. Either that, or they turned on him and they won't tell him. The paranoia is building. A close friend and boss is whacked, and he decides to go to the cops. The police described him as having the look of, quote, a hunted animal. 
He warns the cops that Ligio is secretly still running a lot of the Corleonesi operation from behind bars and is planning the murder of the chief prosecutor of Palermo. Now, the cops had already known about the planned murder of the chief prosecutor. A pentito from Corleone had already told them that several years prior with similar information, but he was deemed insane. His confession included the killings that he himself had been part of, and instead of using it to convict others, the prosecutors turned it against him and sent him to prison for 10 years. When he got out, he was, of course, immediately murdered. Anyway, Pepe di Cristina thinks maybe the Carabinieri will protect him. Maybe the armored car that's coming through in a week will protect him. Maybe it's the automatic weapon he walks around with. Well, the Corleonesi, of course, found out that he had talked. They caught him while he was leaving his apartment, but he was prepared. He's hit and falls to his knees, but he returns fire. One of the hitmen was shot, and they prepared to run away before realizing that Di Cristina's gun had jammed. Either way, after a short chase, they grabbed him and shot him six times in the face. When the police found his body, they took note of a pair of checks in his pocket linked to a guy named Pipo Calo, Pontate's man in Rome, who had a direct funnel of money from Italcase, the state savings bank that Andreotti used to feather the nests of people loyal to him. Just like in earlier times, Di Cristina's testimony proved useless. The judiciary tends to feel that, if the mafia exists, it would mean instant death to go against them. Since you had to be crazy to want instant death and betray the mafia, your statement would be inadmissible anyway. If, that is, the mafia even exists. So the killing of Di Cristina took place on the territory of a Bontate ally named Salvatore Inzerillo. Nobody asked Inzerillo permission, and he demanded answers. It was absolutely illegal within the Cosa Nostra to murder a boss without unanimous consent from the commission. But here we go. Was Di Cristina not an informant? There was adequate reason to whack him from any direction anywhere, unless, of course, you side with the cops. So what if the Corleonesi acted alone? They knew the rules, and so does everyone else. Rules are rules. But this didn't suffice for the bosses of the old ways, where you still followed protocol. In particular, Stefano Bontate finally snapped, with Inserillo pushing him to do something, and his longtime feud with Shorty Rina finally reaching its breaking point, Bontate decided to go to war. What does going to war mean for the prince of Villa Grazia? Well, when his hitman couldn't track down Rina himself, the prince settled for strangling Corleonesi ally Stefano Giaconia to death. Pipo Calderone from Catania, who had helped hide Rina and Provenzano when he f fled to Palermo after being acquitted in 1969, was now worried about where he would end up in this growing war. In 1978, a couple of months after the Di Cristina slaying, he found a bomb under his car. A little while later, he was ambushed on the way to a meeting and shot in the stomach, dying in the hospital a few days later. Calderone's brother, Nino, was told by the Corleonesi that Pipo was killed simply because he had threatened to kill another boss without permission. Antonino described this formalistic excuse for doing exactly what one is accusing the other of doing as a kind of modus operandi. Quote, Kill the adversaries one by one every time the favorable opportunity to eliminate them is presenting itself. And do everything in a formally correct way. That is so that not even the victim's closest friends could react, finding themselves on the wrong side. At Pipo's funeral, Shorty made sure he was the one to give the eulogy. The Virani seemed ignorant, ridiculous even, but they were cunning, and very intelligent. They broke the mafia rules when they needed to, and used the rules to excuse themselves after the fact. Every time they did this, they alienated and infuriated members of the mob, stoking harsh reactions, which they could then use to knock those guys off in turn. In this way, they cut a swathe through their adversaries, always and one by one, provoking a response that they could then exploit for a causus belli. Between 1979 and 1980, the Cosa Nostra could agree on one thing. They launched their first war against the state, 
butchering the crusading provincial secretary of the Christian democracy, Michele Reina, and then Bruno Contrada, Tonino De Luca, and Boris Giuliano from the Palermo Flying Squad. They killed Filadelfio Aparo, a police brigadier. Bontate would say, quote, If a cop causes too much trouble, we try to get him transferred to the continent. It's the best thing. We can't make war on the state. But if he stays here and bothers us again, we'll do him the service. It was the Bontate family who, working through his Rome, had Pipo Calo to hire the Banda della Maliana, hit the journalist Mino Pecorelli in 1979, after the latter uncovered checks showing not just that Andreotti was using public coffers as a slush fund for his current in the Christian democracy, but implicating it in the Cosa Nostra as well. The infamous heroin dealer Francesco Marino Manoia later testified to overhearing Andreotti and Bontate arguing after the murder of Mattarella in 1980, with the latter yelling, quote, In Sicily, we're in charge, and if you don't want to completely erase the DC, you have to do as we say. Otherwise, we'll take away not only the votes in Sicily, but also those of Reggio Calabria and all of southern Italy. You can only count on the votes of the north, where everyone votes communist. The ferocity of the murders opened up more space for Shorty Rina to settle his own accounts. The Corleonesi murdered Mario Francese, a reporter who had among his crimes an interview with Rina's wife in which she complained that he was neglecting her. They also assassinated the judge Cesare Terranova, a brilliant investigator who had watched and studied their rise from the early 1960s. Terranova's stance was that the supposed modern mafia was just the same as the old one from a hundred years ago, the same extortion practices, blackmailing, intimidation, rackets. They had new tools, new business, but the practices were the same, so the forces of order only needed more robust methods to catch them. He was mowed down by a man in a floral shirt, along with his bodyguard, Marshal Lenin Mancuso, on the morning of September 25, 1979. These murders helped clear out some of the opposition, convincing many cops and judges that the best road wasn't to get transferred out, much less to be killed, but instead to work with the Cosa Nostra, passing them information and letting them slip through the cracks a little. This is what they needed to shelter their main business, which had passed from this point uh, from cigarettes, procurement contracts, and construction rackets to heroin. Bontate and Inserillo were dominating the trade still, selling something like 30 to 35 million bucks in heroin to the Gambino family in NYC over two years, which the Gambinos would then turn over at twice that price and some change to keep the disco era rolling. But with Bontate, there were four other families who were all intermarried and effectively ran the Atlantic circuit. The Inserillos... DiMaggio's, Spatola's, and Gambino's. They all had relatives on both sides of the ocean, and they kept the business tight. Shorty Rina was not invited. He was muscle. This was business. It was Boris Giuliano of the Flying Squad who was the first in law enforcement to key in on the heroin production actually happening in the island, and for this, he paid with his life. I already talked a bit about the assassination of Mattarella on the episode, in the episode on the resurgence of the Nuclei Armati Revoluzionari, since there's some evidence to suggest that Cosa Nostra made use of the fascists to execute that Christian Democrat of Aldo Moro's tendency. I also mentioned how the Spatolas and Bontate's brother-in-law Giacomo Vitale helped protect the lawyer-turned-banker Michele Sindono with the help of John Gambino during this period while he was hiding from the law pretending to be kidnapped after ordering the murder of the liquidator Ambrosoli. This is a period of high-flying, mansions, designer, everything. But the five families aren't satisfied. I'll tell you what, old vendettas never die. Rina knew this and would tell his soldiers, the best forgiveness is revenge. Well... Nino Salvo didn't forget what Shorty Rina did to his own father-in-law, kidnapping him and giving him the white shotgun so nobody saw his body. Nobody could bury the man with dignity. Salvo tries to get the drug dealer, Tommaso Buscetta, just released from prison in Turin, to carry out a hit. But Massimo Buscetta resists. It ain't worth it, he tells Salvo. But it sticks with him. 
In a meeting later on with Bontate, Inzerillo, and their associate, Pipo Calo, he observed again the hatred of these guys that they had for Shorty Rina. Bontate tells him, quote, I will kill Corto. Only in this way will order return. I will kill him during a meeting of the commission in front of everyone. I can already imagine the scene. He's sitting there in front of me. I slowly get up. He doesn't notice anything. I grab the gun. Bang, bang, I'll shoot him in the face. And this Camuria is over. We'll leave the whole story behind us forever. Bouchetta responds, Come back to yourself, Stefano. The commission is full of Rina's friends who will kill you a moment later. And then, these things are never done immediately, without much discussion in advance, or it is better to leave them alone and not talk about them to anyone. Rina is like a dog. He smells the conversations and understands that there's something against him in the air. Here instead, talk, talk, while it's the Corleonesi who act and knock us down one by one like Skittles. Dear friend, I have the impression that you're already a dead man. Bontate was, indeed, out of his element. Perhaps he didn't know, couldn't have understood, that his trusted man in Rome, Pipo Calo, the guy with the Banda della Maliana connection, had been involved with the Corleonesi since the Scalione murder. Funny things were always happening in that strange world of Masonic power between Andreotti's checks, the laundering of heroin money through the shell games within the Italian financial system, and the sponsorship of fascist terrorists. Pontate's war on the state in Sicily may have contributed in isolating him from those who still wielded power in Italy. The real trigger for La Matanza occurs when the Corleonesi murder Captain Emanuele Basile. The three hitmen were captured, and the newspapers published their names. Inserillo couldn't ignore that they were all loyal associates of Rina. Again, all bets were off. Totuccio Inserillo wanted to put on display his own capacity to hit the state. Gaetano Costa, a magistrate who was cracking down on some of the mafiosi from his clan, turned towards a nude stand while walking on Via Cavour when an assassin shot him in the face. It was now a competition. Who could stick out their chest more, murder more investigators, magistrates, anti-mafia crusaders? Bontate knew it would all end in disaster and resolved to end it by finally just killing Shorty Rena himself. He went at it with due force. He had trucks of kids with guns patrolling different cities, looking for this guy and trying to murder Toto Rina. Four weeks of effort failed to bear fruit. Inserillo was hopeless and afraid, nervous. Bontate convinced Michele Greco to schedule a meeting with Shorty, not realizing that Greco would inform. Bontate was waiting for a long time with his closest associates at the meeting place when a white Mercedes pulled up. Stefano, the prince of Villagrazia almost ran over to the Mercedes, but the trap had been sprung. The door opened, and inside was not Salvatore Toto Urina. It was just a group of his soldiers. On April 23, 1981, Stefano Bontate finally met his fate. He was going to his villa from a farm house where his 42nd birthday was in the offing. He sped down the street partly out of joy and I'm sure out of nervous excitement. But just then, a Honda motorcycle carrying Pino Greco and Giuseppe Lucchese pulled up beside him. The passenger of the Honda stood up on the running board. Bontate went for the pistol near his armpit, but before he could pull it, a shot smashed into his face. Followed by two more. He slouched over the wheel of his Giulietta Super as it careened off the road and into the stone wall. Nobody could argue that it wasn't just. Bontate had initiated the war, even if it took a thousand cuts to bring him to that point. Inserillo probably should have been more worried than he was. But he thought he had insurance. He had brought Shorty on for a massive 200-kilo shipment. And now he owed the Corleonesi a lot of money. Why would they kill someone who was about to make them richer than rich? John Gambino was Inzerillo's cousin, and he was bringing him into the ground floor of Atlantic City. At that time, really just a dream. And Inzerillo was buying in to the tune of 20%. 
This was going to be the future. He could feel it. Rina could feel it too. And Shorty knew if he moved on Inserillo's turf, the four billion lire that he owed him would look like chump change. The Corleonesi found out that Totuccio Inserillo was going to see his lady the next morning, and the hit squad practiced their AKs on a jewelry shop window that night to make sure they would penetrate the armored glass. They waited in a van parked right next to the armored Alfetta all morning for Inserillo to emerge from that big building in Via Brunelleschi. Finally, at 10 to noon, Inserillo steps out of number 50, walking towards his car. They threw up in the door of their van and mowed him down just steps from his armored car. He was shot in the face so many times that they had to ID him with fingerprints. This was the beginning of the slaughter, La Matanza, that had been brewing for a full decade. It's called the Second Mafia War, some call it the Third Mafia War, but really, it was just that. It was a slaughter. The thing is, Bontate thought he would go piece by piece, like a chessboard. He wanted to get Rina, but if he couldn't, maybe he could pick off the most fearsome soldier, Pino Greco, the Scarpuzzetta, born with an AK in his hand, who graduated with high marks in Greek and Latin. But not only did Scarpuzzetta get this jump on him, there was no backup plan from Stefano Bontate. On the other hand, Rina had a serious plan. This was just going to be the beginning. Pentito later said, quote, There was a careful study to identify district by district those who were close to Stefano Bontate, and then proceeded with their systematic killing. He continued, I found many young people with numerous weapons available on the table and ready to move in a very short time to carry out murders. The slaughter that ensued was horrible and terrifying. When Inserillo's brother Santino was lured to a meeting of honored men with his uncle Calogero di Maggio, they took out rope to show it was time to die. Undaunted, Santino continued to scream threats about the sworn death of Shorty Rina before being strangled to death with his uncle. Taking their bodies away in garbage bags, they roasted them over a big grill and buried whatever remained under a pergola. Inserillo's 15-year-old son, Giuseppe, declared an oath of vengeance, and Scarpuzzetta caught him, cut his arm off with an urchin fisherman's knife, and whispered as he passed out, And now how are you going to shoot Toto Rina? Then he continued to insult and mock the incapacitated kid before executing him with a bullet to the back of the head and dissolving the body in a drum of hydrochloric acid. Pietro Inserillo, another brother, was slaughtered like a goat on Easter, his hands and feet tied together with a rope connected to his neck. When his legs failed, the rope tightened, and he gradually strangled himself to death. He was wrapped in plastic and disposed of in the trunk of a Cadillac. There was $20 in his mouth and 10 somewhere else. And that murder took place in New York. Across 1981, the Corleonesi hunted and killed some 500 people and the same amount the next year. They hunted them to Germany, to the U.S. There was nowhere safe. They wanted to wipe out the line of Bontate and Inserillo, but also Badalamenti. Another Pentito stated, quote, War occurs when two or more families arm themselves and know that one group is fighting against another. In Palermo, this mafia war never happened. There was a massacre. There was only this strategy of terror by Toto Rina. We had reached the point where we were afraid to talk even among friends because we looked at each other and thought, he's not here, but he hears everything. John Gambino went to Sicily to meet with Shorty, returning to his people in New York to tell them, think not of the dead, but of the living. Corleone is in charge now. Mayor Salvo Lima became a subject of the Corleonesi. The tax collector Nino Salvo fled the country for Greece. The island had been totally transformed by the end of La Matanza. 
What the Corleonesi had done was to change the Cosa Nostra from an entitled bunch of hypocrites who ran rackets according to their own proud rules with codes of ethics protecting those at the top from those at the bottom, thinking of the Cosa Nostra as a group of distinguished families from discrete territories with intersecting collaborative interests was now crazy. The most vicious killers were at the positions of highest control, and thinking of a time when the leader of a family, like Pippo Calderone, wouldn't go around armed or shoot anyone himself was like thinking of a Disneyland of witches and castles. These were different times. It was the 1980s. Hard drugs had hit the counterculture, shattering its sense of gentleness, community, and meaning, and fostering a new era of rapacious egoism, individualism, and glorified violence. At exactly the same time as the years of lead hit their peak and then rapidly burned out into disaster, the Mafia's own attack on the heart of the state in Sicily was reaching its own feverish turning point. In 1981, as the Red Brigades were fraying into various factions, the Nuclei Armati Rivoluzionari were beginning their own disintegration, and Prima Lina were similarly falling to pieces, the Cosa Nostra was emerging as the most violent and powerful extra-statal force in Italy. The era of ideologies and ideas seemed to be evaporating in the cold, hard, material realities of failure, with only bloody murder and prison to show for all the armed struggles. Drugs offered a way out of this cold, hard reality, somehow imagining more fun and excitement to deal with the disastrous disillusionment. Thus, instead of the proletarian revolution, Shorty Rina's Corleonesi ensured that the 80s were a time for a different sort of materialism. Pop music, consumption, vice, all layered over the institutional corruption that plagued the First Republic and ultimately brought it to its knees. So that's the story of La Matanza and the transformation of Sicily in the 1970s. This is the Years of Lead Pod. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross. Bye.